Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Christianity Today and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, pastors and church leaders. Uh, Really glad that you are tuned in this morning. I really think that the conversation that is ahead is a really important one. Um, Many of us think about rhythms a lot. We think about the rhythms of our church, we think about the rhythms of, of our lives, and we think about the rhythms of our pastoral calling. And so I had an opportunity many years ago uh, while I was in seminary, uh, a, a really good professor of mine threw me this book called The Book of Pastoral Rule by St. Gregory the Great. Uh, and I can tell you that that book deeply influenced how I see my calling, what I sense it looks like to be a healthy pastor. And uh, it has been a book that has just continued to be one that I go back to uh, time and time again. Well, recently I was given a book called A Pastoral Rule for Today, Reviving an Ancient Practice. And I read through it and just really resonated deeply with what the three authors were talking about and the perspectives that they were bringing on what it looks like to be a healthy pastor in today's landscape. Um, The book was written by John Burgess, Jerry Andrews, and Joseph Small. Um, and I appreciate their perspective because John is a theologian. Uh, he works in, in the academy. Uh, Jerry is a pastor in San Diego, and Joseph works for the, the PCA, PCUSA church, and uh, has just spent a lot of time ministering to ministers. Um, but what's great is the way that they approach this is they take a walk through the, the history of the church, and they, and they sort of pick out these main themes of what a healthy rule looks like. So pastors, I know that some of the big questions that we have ahead of us are always, what does it look like to grow our church? What does it look like to be a healthy church? But we're kind of going to move it back a bit, and we're going to say, what does it look like to be a healthy pastor? And again, as you know, that is exactly what we are most concerned about here on the Monday Morning Pastors. How do we equip and encourage and undergird pastors, uh, period, in this season, in any season? What does that look like? So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, about pastoral rule. I hope you enjoy the way in which this can challenge you, uh, can uh, encourage you, and can equip you to continue in ministry for the years to come. Before we jump into the interview, I just wanted to give a quick disclaimer. The audio quality is not the best. We tried a few different things, uh, but we it's definitely understandable, but it's not up to the par that we continue to try to strive for here at the Monday Morning Pastor. Hope you enjoy this conversation. John and Jerry, welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Good to be here. Glad to be here. So uh, you guys wrote a book uh, along with another gentleman called A Pastoral Rule for Today. And uh, I've had a chance to read it. And man, it has been so good. But before we jump into the book, I would love for you to tell our audience briefly about your pastoral ministry experience, just a little bit of your own stories. Let me start off because I'm the one of the three authors uh, who doesn't have a lot of pastoral experience, but I'm a seminary professor. And so I'm thinking about the calling of pastors all the time as I look at my students. 
So I, of course, have done supply preaching and teaching. I'm very active in church life. And I uh, worked for a number of years in the denominational offices of the Presbyterian Church, where actually that's how I got to get to know Jerry and other pastors. So I'm not a a pastor on a daily basis, but very committed to pastors and learn a lot from them. Uh, you know, actually, there are three of us on the book. John, who you just heard from, uh, was the editor. Three of us have been friends for a, a very long time. The third is Joe Small, who is a senior to both of us, both by, well, by age and I think whatever, by moral and theological authority or something like that as well. Joe pastored um, beginning in the 60s in Maryland and uh, then in uh, Ohio and then in New York for the first third of his ministry and the second two-thirds over 25 years in our denominational offices, leading our Office of Theology and Worship, which uh, was, and still his legacy, a stimulating, creative place, which are not words you usually think of when describing denominational offices. Mm. Uh, so we're both grateful to Joe. Um, I've been a pastor all along from a seminary graduation outside of Pittsburgh in a rural area. Um, Chicago for 20-some years, and then here at the First Presbyterian Church downtown San Diego for a little over 12 years now. Well, thank you, guys. I, it's, I, first of all, I'm so glad that we have uh, the two of you on with us. Be, and even I love the experience of one who's, who is deeply invested in the training of pastors, the equipping of pastors, and one you know on both sides of that, whether it's in seminary or whether it's within the denominational space where you all in, inhabit. Um, so talk to us about a pastoral rule for today. What was the force and vision behind writing this book? I'll start off again. You know, working with pastors, gathering them for theological reflection, being a seminary teacher. One of the things that Jerry, Joe, and I noticed was that the pastoral ministry today imposes so many demands on a person. The expectations can be incredibly high that the the pastor is teacher, preacher, leader of worship, personnel manager, Sunday school teacher, in some small churches, probably also the janitor or the secretary. And it's really easy to start to feel like I've lost my balance. Why did I get into this business in the first place? And seeing that situation among so many pastors, the sense of being off balance, even burnout, we got to thinking, what are the core practices that can keep a pastor rooted in a pastor's deepest vocation, which is to Help the people of God think about their lives before God. So that's really what got us started, just wanting to be a help to pastors to keep them rooted in their deepest vocation. Um, John's uh, more of a Christian than me, and so he thinks of this all in terms of positive motivation. I was appalled at what some of my colleagues have self-reported and saw myself in it as well. Uh, But John had called our attention to a survey that's a, a really pretty good and accurate survey of Presbyterian pastors. So can't blame this on the rest of Christendom, but this is us. 
and uh, they were asked the question, how often do you read the scripture non-instrumentally? That means you're not preparing for a sermon, you're not preparing for a Bible study. You just open it up and you say, Lord, what do you have to say to me today? And if it's not much, that's okay. I'm going to keep on reading. I'm going to return to it tomorrow. So uh, 32% only, I want to say only, 32% of us said that we do that at least once a week. Mm. John called our attention. We were in three different places, Joe and Louisville and John in um, uh, Pittsburgh. And I think I was still in Chicago at the time. And uh, we looked, we saw this chart where, you know, he got all these graphs and stuff like that. And I heard Joe, who got to it before I did, murmur, well, no wonder. And huh. I got to it and I said, okay, Joe, what do you mean? Well, no wonder. And Joe said, Jerry, you've been crabby since as long as I've known you. That this is an uncatechized church. The teachers of the faith don't know the faith. And that's why we're struggling so, so poorly. But Jerry, they're not even reading their Bibles. Okay, then you take John's compassionate look. How can we help them do that? My first instinct was, what a bunch of jerks. <laughs> um, you know, this is God's calling. You can't open up the Bible. Good grief. But, but that's the fact of that. And, of course, yeah, I saw myself into it, too. I am far more into the Bible instrumentally than I am as a disciple of Jesus. Um, I spend all day money, all day money, 12 hours, if I can, on a, the Bible study that prepares for the next week's sermon. So that no matter what happens with the rest of my week, I can give a world-class Bible study in the pulpit. It'll bore my congregation to tears and test their patience, but I feel prepared. Only later in the week will I craft the sermon. But uh, that's my best day. Monday's my best day. It's me and Jesus and the Word. It's me and David and the Psalms. And can you think of a better way to live life? Yeah. Well, Tuesday morning, I don't open up the Bible and say, Lord, what do you have to say to me? That wasn't part of Monday. Monday, I was a preacher in preparation. So we thought, okay, we, we need to reaffirm some basics. If you want to be cynical about the book, and I would get why somebody would be, the book says, uh, take two aspirins, get a full night of sleep, call me in the morning, tell me how you're doing. We're, we're given some pretty basic um, wisdom here. Read your Bible. Read it with others. Read stimulating theological and missional works. Hold each other accountable. Establish time with God and with others. Pray. Observe the Sabbath. Do the kinds of things that not only sustains people, but sustains ministries, indeed sustains the people of God as a whole. I think that's what the book is. Yeah. Go ahead, John. It looks yeah, like you're ready to well, say something. And, and just to add to what Jerry said, um, one of the things we noticed was not not only do pastors tend to ignore scripture except for instrumental purposes, but it's so easy just to professionalize hmm. ministry. So if you look over the week, well, when did I pray? Well, I prayed when I was at the hospital bedside. I prayed uh, to get the women's circle meeting off and running. I prayed on Sunday morning, but but did I pray for myself? Did I go into my own prayer closet to listen for God's word? It's paradoxically easy as a pastor to professionalize these activities, but then to ignore their spiritual foundations for yourself. Or or Joe Small likes to say, 
You know, I can always tell when a pastor went to seminary because I look at the books on his or her shelves, and the last serious theological books they read were the books they read in seminary. Mm. They don't keep reading theologically. They read instrumentally. Mm. How do I organize uh, a stewardship program? How do I offer better pastoral care? So we wanted to lift up the centrality of scripture reading, prayer, and deep theological reflection for sustaining what is at the heart of pastoral ministry. Mm. I, I think there's something very profound about what you were saying. I was just having a conversation with one of my elders last night, and he said, you know, the pastors, you know, you and Ben, he's talking to the two pastors of the church that I pastor, he said, you guys need to get away from the how-to and look at the who-to. Now, he's an ordained minister in the Scottish Presbyterian Church uh, and one of, my, one of my favorite people to wrestle with theologically. But there is something that I think is so true about how easy it is to get sucked into the how-to. And I'm not saying the how-to is bad. I think there's a lot of good things to learn. But we got to get underneath of the how-to to, well, who, who are we? Like, who is God? Who, what does it mean for us to be a disciple. And so I, I really, yeah. And again, I, um, I appreciate the fact that you guys take us through a huge breadth of church history um, as, and I, you know, I felt like I was sitting down and um, I don't, I can't say smoking a pipe with Wesley, but hanging out with Wesley or, you know, <laughs> spending time with Augustine and, and his friends. And, and, and I love how you begin a book with, with something that I think many pastors that I've spoken with, that many of us have come into contact with, forget, and that's the the art of friendship, what it looks like to have friendships along the journey, and even theological friendships, which I've never actually thought of that term as what is a theological friend. Um, so I, I wanted, yeah, I'm going to, we'll jump into that in a minute, but I did want to ask you this. So, you know, people hear a pastoral rule, they they may be thinking, okay, like, is this Old Testament law? Like rule has a lot of different connotations to it, or it may not have any connotation at all. So unpack, what is a rule, and why does this need to matter to pastors? One answer, and again, both Jerry and I learned this from, from uh, Joe Small. In the Presbyterian tradition, going back to Scotland, elders were called ruling elders. Ruling elders. And of course, today, when we hear that term, ruling elders, as you say, Doug, well, that brings up connotations of legality, of mm. rules, of bureaucracy. But actually, what it meant originally was that the elders, and by, by the way, in the Presbyterian tradition, ruling elders includes both pastors and uh, the elders of a congregation. Uh, the, all of them are elders, but the, the ruling elders, the, the connotation of ruling was that of a ruler. You know, go back to grade school. Well, at least my grade school, maybe not anymore yours, Doug, but, you know, we still had those 12-inch uh, rulers that we pulled out. And what do you do with a ruler? You measure. And, and that's what a pastoral rule is all about. It's about measuring my progress in the spiritual life. Mm. How am I doing? Where can I grow? Am I staying on track? And so rule in that sense, not restrict, well, of course, rules always involve an element of discipline, but really yes. for the positive purpose of 
as Wesley might have said, uh, becoming more holy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's the ancient meaning, too. When um, Augustine uses the word in Latin, and so does Gregory the Grey, they do not mean rule over. Um, they're both very clear, as I hope we are. The Savior actually forbids that. You may not rule over them. But you can measure out the faith. You can, you, you can say, are you doing it? I use this as an illustration. Well, we did it last Tuesday night with my elders, 18 ruling elders, two teaching elders, um, the other pastor and I. And what are we doing with the fact, I got a 400 and some member congregation, 200 and some show up. There's another 100 or so that probably shouldn't show up given COVID and their age and everything else. And about 100 who, well, welcome to the real world. They think they're members, but you never know about life by anything that they do um, uh, constructively. But I have a 1,000 people online. Mm. Who are these people? And for my members who are worshiping online, the question is not, are we, pack, are we packing them in? The question is, are they worshiping? Hmm. Here are the ruling elders. How would you know that except you know your members? You've talked to them. You've had serious conversations with them. You've said, okay, you're worshiping online. We are so grateful. I got some great tech people. It, what we do online is really, really superb. And I got incredible musicians of, hmm. of all styles. I have the director of the San Diego Symphony and part of the symphony here in the church. And we wow. know how to put on music. I mean, it's just, it's something to behold. With the fear of that, it's something to behold, huh. not to engage with. Well, how would we know? We have to ask them. This is not a survey. This is a phone call. This is a visit. These are, these ruling elders are shepherds of the flock. And if they're going to exercise Christ's rule in the church, they need to know how the sheep are faring. So the question is, when you hear the word, do you know that this is God's word to you? Could you give me an illustration of where you found, you know, comfort for the afflicted and affliction for the comfortable or whatever? When we pray, did you pray? Did you pray? We have communion every week. Most Presbyterian churches don't, but we do. Right. Do you have a sense? Do you, do you have you experienced the communion with Christ and with your neighbor? So they're ruling, they're measuring out the faith, and that becomes important to us. In that sense, a pastoral rule is how would I measure my faithfulness? I want to be, I want to be found faithful. Frankly, it's been a long haul. It's been a lot of work. And this is the other than my family, this is what I have done with my life. At the end of it, I don't want to get to the pearly gates and some angel pat me on the head and say, Well, bless his heart. You know, the boy tried. I, I want some effectiveness in, in my faithfulness. Mm. How would I know? Pastoral rule helps see how Christ rules, how Christ is measured out in my life by my attachment to him and my growing appreciation of his, his to me. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that really helps people recognize that when we think about a rule of life, it really is it's really a conversation around how do we measure, but also what are the healthy rhythms that really fit into 
the ways in which we relate with God on a regular basis, not just on the... Prof- and I really appreciate that distinction that you mentioned earlier about the, the professional Christians, right? Like it's, I think, I think that's part of the, part of the, the, the pandemic that's affected the church for many, many years is that pastors have become professional. And so what does it look like to, to be God's children first and foremost, and who happen to also be called to be, to be pastors. And so I'd love to just, just, I mean, you guys look at some of the, you know, you, you take, you take looks at the pillars of our, you know, the, the, the men who have just given so much of who they are and in the writings throughout the the history of the church. Um, but you begin with friendship. Why do you begin with friendship? Uh, because we're Presbyterians. Providence, <laughs> all things work out. Uh, and Augustine is the earliest. So we decided to go chronologically. Uh, that was one of the two chapters I wrote. Comes first is chronologically. And there are many, many lessons you can get from Augustine. You know, I would think the most obvious is the one that's sometimes the least obvious. For again, we're, we're Presbyterians, so our heroes are Calvin and Augustine and Knox. All these boys were pastors. None of them held an academic academic position from which they wrote their theological works. They all did it as working pastors. Yeah, for a good part of it, Augustine was a bishop. But he preached every Sunday. He had his own congregation. Frankly, his mother's best friends were in it, and they didn't like him. He, 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 had, he, uh, he was a pastor. So all, all of these things come from a pastor's study. Uh, maybe Bart is a hero uh, uh, for some, not just in the Reformed tradition. Yeah, he held some academic positions, but the boy was a pastor. Not just he had a kind of a pastor's heart. I read Bart, I kind of wonder how much of a pastor's heart was there, but he worked as one. This was the calling. And so there, there's a sense in our calling and in the academy and in the church that doing this alone, you would argue in the long run is harder and weaker, but boy, is it easy to do week by week. The effort to spend time with others is effort. So what it might look like, I'm in a covenant group with uh, four or five pastors here in San Diego Presbytery, of other Presbyterian churches, um, if you will, kind of the theological friendship, the theological accountability sounds something like this. We all bring our own apps to grind to the conversation. Um, I would say to one of, one of the pastors, so, um, Mike, how are you doing officer training? If, you're, if your ruling elders are, are to be apt to teach, as says Paul to Timothy and Titus, are you teaching them to teach? Do they know the faith? Are they confident enough about it to teach it, to live it, to, not only just to model it, but to show it out? And are you doing this? And um, Mike can reply to me, Jerry, I just listened to one of your sermons. Gee, you're a bright boy. Gee, you went to school a long time. And Jerry, just exactly where was the gospel in that sermon again? Mm. That's, that's a theological friendship. Some degree of mutual accountability, support and admonition, encouragement and admonition. Mm. If it were easy to do, we would have all done it by now. Mm. I think it's a hard thing. Yeah. But we witness all of these great minds. I mean, obviously, just absolutely brilliant. 
I think that's... He's the brightest boy between Plato and whatever modern you like. He thinks he never came up with an original thought. Yeah. He thinks it all came out of conversation with the godly. Mm. I was going to just add, I think that's a real drumbeat throughout the book, this theme of mutual encouragement and accountability, that this uh, means pastors need to find ways to be in covenant groups where they pray together, read scripture together, reflect theologically together, that this is life-giving, and this is what sustains ministry for the long haul. As Jerry said, you know, it's so obvious, but in practice, it's so hard. Pastors tend to get really isolated. And yet we know from all the sociological evidence, when do pastors screw up? It's when they're too much by themselves. And that's when they get tempted by addictions and immoral behaviors. They make mistakes. So, you know, this is um, this mutual encouragement and accountability is both for spiritual reasons, but also just practically so that pastors can be good pastors and grow in holiness in a way that invites others to join with them in that great, great venture of the faith. Mm. Yeah, I I think you're, I think you're right. There seems to be, um, I'm not surprised that there's as many pastors who are leaving the ministry right now or struggling in addiction or having the issues that are with the amount of isolation that has been forced on top of an already isolated profession uh, for many. And I think both of you are are really onto something in the intentionality that it takes to say, yeah, this is a hard thing to actually set up time where I'm going to meet with another pastor and say, hey, Let's sit and have an act like a, an honest conversation about where we are, about what's actually happening. And I love the questions that you have at the end of that chapter around friendship, uh, because it, it gives at least some guidelines and some opportunities for some even some more creativity to take place. But what it does is it really invites pastors to stop being alone. It's almost that 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 beautiful invitation to say, "Hey, um, you know." One of the very first, well, the, the the first not good in all of scriptures. It's not good for man to be alone, and so it's not good for pastors to be alone. And I just I appreciate that, and I love that you started with that, and even you see that thread running throughout the entire book of this idea of like this is stuff that we do within community. Yes, you have your own part to play, but to have that accountability uh, is something that's really really important. And so, like, I mean, even just thinking, you know, can. Can you sort of talk through, you know, if, if I'm a novice, I've, I've never thought about what healthy rhythms, like what a healthy pastoral rule would look like. Are there like main buckets? And I know you have some in here, but what would you say would be the main buckets that pastors need to begin to think about what it is to having the opportunity to, 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 to live in the ancient ways or to, to revive this ancient practice of being a pastor? One of the things we learned from examining these different figures from church history. As you point out, Doug, we begin with Augustine and uh, the early 5th century, the church's life, and then all the way up to the 20th century with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, what we found is that in each case, the rules had to be relevant to their particular social context. So I think that's also true today. We don't have a particular paradigm 
that we would impose on pastors, but we want to raise the right questions. We want to say, given your situation, how would you do this? You might not do it like Augustine. You might not do it like Bonhoeffer, but do something. And then around these key points that we've been mentioning. So how do I gather with others to read scripture, to pray, to think theologically, to think about my context of ministry, the people I'm serving, to do that in a disciplined, regular way, but do something, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly. Maybe it's a covenant group that meets just once a year, but do something and do something realistic. That's the other thing about a pastoral rule. It's so easy to get idealistic. Oh, you know, I'm going to pray five times a day and I'm going to read through each book of the Bible before the end of the year. And when we're not able to fulfill that, we get frustrated, we drop it. So part of the flexibility of a pastoral rule is find what works for you, write something down that you can commit yourself to, but then, you know, every three or four months, look at it again. Mm. Have I been fulfilling it? Is it too simple? Is it demanding too much? What's what's realistic that keeps me accountable, but is also realistic? Yeah, I think I would just want to say what we've emphasized earlier, all of what John said, comma, with others. Um, I, I don't think I would advise sitting down with a blank piece of paper and coming up with a pastoral rule. I think I would sit down with five friends hmm. together coming up with a pastoral rule. Um, again, we're Calvinists. Uh, we delight in the fact that we know more than anybody else how wicked is the human heart. Uh, you give me a blank piece of paper and I can fill it out. And that will be the end of the exercise. <laughs> that's, that's it. I showed my brilliance. I showed my wit. I showed I could complete my homework. Done. Um, and then kind of hope to God that nothing will ever change in me because, frankly, it's too good right now. And that's, to me, that's, uh, I'm going to talk very personally here at the end of that chapter about theological friendships and talk about how important John and Joe in particular have been in my life in the beginning. 15 years into my ministry before I ever had a theological conversation with another person. Mm -hmm. And um, there were some things in some area that kind of made me turn other ways. But I, whatever it is, I, 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 my field of interest is Augustine and early Latin and Greek Christians and learned the languages and did the PhD work and all that. But I was in conversation with dead people. Let me tell you how wonderful that is. The hard part is they never change their mind, no matter how right <laughs> I am and wrong they are. They never change their mind. But when I'm done listening to them, I close the book. There's no accountability. This, that's an, it, it, it takes some discipline, but it's an easy conversation. With real-life people, hmm, I might need to amend. I certainly will need to amend. Mm. Um, and, and so I didn't seek it out. I didn't know I missed it until it was offered. And thinking that this was primarily an academic exercise, and there'd be others around the table. John was at the head of the table. Uh, we read a book, didn't like the book. I uh, loved the conversation. And we're like, gee, this is what I'm missing. Didn't know how hungry I was for it. And the brilliance of Augustine, again, God's providence in his life. This guy died surrounded in his deathbed by people who went to kindergarten. Most of whom became bishops. 
They lived their lives, and they were wrong for the first half of their life, magnificently wrong, hence the confessions. But they lived life together. So he didn't have to discover it. God provided it. And in providing Augustine to us, he allows us to discover it somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. I think seminaries are getting sharper about this. Um, they understand cohorts and communal living. Um, and uh, that's a hard thing. Frankly, can I say, if you think you're bright, whether I am or not, beside the point, I think I am. I don't want to be weighed down by having common projects. Just let me shine. Can, can you think of anything more arrogant hmm. and more in the long term self-destructive than this attitude of serving a Savior who set them out two by two, Paul who never went alone, thinking, but I can. That's just an arrogance. And it harms the church greatly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's there is something that I think is real that is really pointed when it comes to understanding. I guess the danger it is when you do go at it alone, but the joy that it can be when you go at it with others. And and yeah, I I remember reading. I I didn't know that about about Augustine when when I read that about him being surrounded by his friends and. I just thought, man, what a beautiful life. I mean, you know, <laughs> what I've read, um, the way that he has just been such a gift to the church, how many thousands, you know, about 1,500 years, 1,600 years later, and here's this person who still kept in contact with those kindergarten buddies of his. And I think there's something there where, like, my hope is that as pastors are listening to this, that there's this um, imagination that's being sparked where they're recognizing, huh, who are my friends? Like, who are the people that I can sit down with? And I love that idea of, if you're going to write a rule, sit down with, with three or four close friends with a blank sheet of paper and say, how are we going to do this together? And, and I think that's what, that's the interesting part about this is because almost, I've read a lot of really good books on, you know, developing a rhythm of life and all this stuff and friendship is part of it, but it never seems to be the central key of like, do this in community. This is one of those pieces that I think is really um, just a gift to pastors in in a season where you know you think of the pandemic and you, I know this wasn't that this was written before the pandemic released in the pandemic and I think you guys did wise by keeping it evergreen and not throwing a bunch of pandemic stuff in it. However, pastors are overwhelmed. The technology stuff that soared through the roof. I mean, you, you we had to learn Zoom and all kinds of different crazy stuff within the matter of a few weeks. Uh, we have the pressures of folks dying, folks not dying, folks who are on all different parts of the conversation around vaccines or wearing masks, and we're feeling tired and overwhelmed. And it seems like when you come into this space, it's like this this idea of developing a rule together, developing a rule for pastors, um, is almost like a direct, in direct uh, competition of of ha- this isolation feeling that I think a lot of us are experiencing at this point. So I, I have we only have time for one more question. I'd love to hear, I'm going to just, just let you guys talk, but what would you have to say to the pastor who's listening right now, who is feeling overwhelmed and tired and ready to throw in the towel? Um, I'm willing to give it a shot, not knowing the particular circumstance. These are the things that help me as uh, simple as they may be. Uh, there really is a God as it turns out, who has called you and has provided for you. Don't neglect the provision. 
part of that provision for ministry in the church is the church. But I'm not to see myself as an adversary of the sheep of which I'm the shepherd. And yes, in my worst, worst moments, yeah, the sheep bite the shepherd. That may mean that they're bad sheep. But if the shepherd bites the sheep, he's the wolf, and that's intolerable. But that they are for me, and that I can find colleagues, whether in networks of home churches or in mainline and evangelical church associations, there are others. You went to school with somebody. There's some pastor down the road. There's some value in crossing, uh, if you will, um, theological lines and traditional lines uh, and all that. But those aren't absolute values. Finding four or five people that you can trust and whom it would be worth it for you to earn their trust uh, because you'd like to have it. Um, and you do this. You know, again, I don't know that I need to persuade anybody after this conversation, but I can't read in the book of Acts that somebody went off to pray somewhere. Or somebody got out the Old Testament scripts and came up with some really great ideas alone. It reports nothing of that. So that is the normative experience mm. for a North American pastor. You do this alone. They gathered in homes. That's the important part of the sentence for apostles teaching and fellowship breaking of bread in prayer. The announcement is they didn't act alone. Somewhere in there is, and don't you dare. Hmm. Pastors who are with other pastors have a fighting chance to endure the difficulties of being a pastor. I think, too, during the pandemic, one of the things we discovered is technology can do a lot. We're thankful for it, but there's still something invaluable about being in the presence, the embodied presence of another person. And so for us to be creative during a time of the pandemic, not to endanger one another, but still not to give up on ways that we can be personally embodied, present to one another, even if it's six feet apart. Uh, for pastors during this time not to resign to isolation, but on the contrary, to look for the creative possibilities to, con to continue to connect with one another, encourage one another, and, and hold one another accountable. There, it's just a precious, precious gift when pastors can join with others to pray together, read scripture together, think theologically together. It's, it's an incomparable gift, and it's part of our wonderful calling. Amen. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time, um, and thank you so much for, yeah, the book that you have given to the church in this season. I feel like there's, uh, there's a lot here to be learned and a lot to be practiced, which, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Well, thanks for joining us for today's episode. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we've launched online group coaching cohorts and online group spiritual direction cohorts for pastors and leaders just like you. They meet monthly to equip, encourage uh, you and other leaders and to offer you a chance to journey with other leaders from around the country as well. 
For more information, you can log on to kairospartnerships.org or check out the show notes. Thanks for listening to MMP, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.